Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. New House spending levels as continues continue their floor antics as House defense appropriators release their markup. And Tommy Tuberville, uh, the Alabama Republican, continues his hold on senior uh, military promotions. Ukraine gains are slow as Russia cracks Ukraine's air defenses to strike cities deep in the country as Moscow uh, redeploys nukes to Belarus. And Vladimir Putin wishes Xi Jinping a very happy birthday. NATO pledges more aid to Kiev and some want to offer membership. Germany issues its first ever national security strategy and NATO launches its biggest ever air exercise. And on a visit to Japan, the alliance's secretary general explained that there would be no liaison office in Tokyo that would also coordinate NATO activities with Australia, New Zealand and South Korea. This over France's objections. And it turns out China already has a spy base on Cuba built during the Trump years after the Wall Street Journal reported that China planned to build a spy base on Cuba. The administration said the story was inaccurate. The correction, the base wasn't planned. It was already built and nothing was done about it at the time it was built. And the current administration is trying to resolve the matter diplomatically. And the White House wants to dial down tensions with Iran. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his very many affiliations. Everybody, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, very much appreciated. Michael, as usual, start us off uh, another banner week on the Hill. The revolt continues uh, with floor antics. Uh, this is new uh, spending levels are set in the House and House appropriators uh, issue uh, their marks, uh, uh, their defense markup which does include some doozies in it. And Dove, you're going to get a first bite at this apple. Uh, walk us through what's going on up there. Well, uh, I'll get to appropriations in a minute, but it's also important to note that the authorizers also released the chairman's mark of the NDAA as well. So we'll talk about both because they're both, uh, there's some differences between the two. But you know, we spent the first six months talking about uh, whether we can avoid a, a default. Now we're going to spend the rest of the year talking about whether we can avoid a government shutdown. Uh, you know, As we talked about last week, uh, you know, there's a band of conservatives in the House that were very unhappy with the debt ceiling deal that McCarthy cut with Democrats, even though he got extraordinary uh, concessions from them. And they're very upset that more Democrats voted for the deal than Republicans. And one of the demands that they were asking for was even though the debt ceiling deal uh, allow, requires um, spending at the FY23 level or just below, they want to go to the FY22 level, which was the Republicans' initial demand. And I had said last week, that if McCarthy agreed to that, that, in my opinion, that was checkmate uh, for the Freedom Caucus. And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, earlier this week, uh, the House Republican leadership agreed to go back to the FY22 level as the overall spending level, which means an additional $122 billion in deeper cuts than were agreed to. Uh, and they're trying to spin it by saying the Fiscal Responsibility Act to raise the debt limit uh, was a top line spending cap, not a floor. Uh, and that this was, you know, their plan all along, even though I, I don't believe that it, it was. And, you know, Democrats are coming out swinging, especially Rosa DeLauro, who's the ranking Democrat on the Appropriations Committee, saying if we disregard the law of the land, we all but guarantee a government shutdown. And uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries echoed that uh, a statement a day later. Uh, now, because defense is growing at just 3%, but it is growing above the previous year, and they did add some money to Milcon VA and to Homeland, that means the cuts in the rest of the non-defense domestic discretionary are even deeper. It will be about $150 billion in cuts. So, for example, the Departments of Labor, Education, and Health and Human Services are going to get cut by about a third. Uh, and the Transportation and Housing Departments will be cut by about a quarter. And there's some other mischief in there, too. They're looking at defunding uh, the Justice Department's investigation uh, into Donald Trump. And, you know, we're only in June. So we're, you know, a quarter of the way into the uh, new majority of the House. And there's no guarantee that this group of rebels is going to be satisfied with even these concessions. That What are they going to ask for next? And there are 
folks on Kevin McCarthy's leadership team uh, that are referring to these guys now as legislative terrorists. And they say every week they feel they're going to have new demands. Now, in the meantime, over in the Senate, uh, you know, they're trying to say, hey, look, nothing to see over there. Pay attention to us. We're going to be the grownups. We're going to get our bills done. And, you know, Senator Chris Murphy, for example, has said, look, we're, we got to put together the same coalition that uh, passed the debt ceiling bill. And the House Freedom Caucus has never voted for appropriations bills and they never will. And he's, he's correct. But, you know, the problem there is if they do put that coalition together and they do pass appropriations bills, at, if, if they're able to at the higher number, uh, will the Freedom Caucus then have a motion to vacate? You know, is, is Kevin McCarthy's uh, gavel in trouble? And again, if there is a supplemental uh, later this year, because uh, there still continues to be talking about that, is you know, Kevin McCarthy's uh, gavel in trouble? So you know, right now, you know, appropriations is really at a stalemate. And it's, it's so bad that Wednesday night, uh, the Appropriations Committee met to talk about funding levels for each bill, and the meeting completely blew up and got so heated that they had to adjourn uh, until the following morning. And Democrats just railed against the Republicans uh, now saying they're going to mark up spending bills to the 22 level, saying, I think it was Steny Hoyer that said, you know, what the hell is the point of making a deal if you're told, oh, well, that was just a ceiling. Uh, it's not right. really what it is. And they continue to fight over how earmarks are being uh, delineated, that they feel the Republicans are taking a bigger share than they're entitled to versus the Democrats. So that continues to be a mess. Uh, NDAA, however, is a has been released, and that's a really a bipartisan uh, document. I mean, it sticks to the uh, Biden's defense number of 886 billion. Uh, there's a few things there to note. I think, you know, for one, uh, dealing with Space Command, I mean, the bill is going to bar any funding uh, for uh, any Air Force military construction project or permanent or temporary facilities for headquarters by use of Space Command until the service submits a report to Congress outlining justification for the selection of a permanent location for the command. We're still waiting to see where they're going to locate it. And the bill also freezes half of Secretary Kendall's uh, travel budget until this report uh, is submitted. Uh, as expected, we talked uh, months ago when we saw the budget come and, over. And what was and and what's the catalyst uh, for that? Just remind the audience because people are scratching uh, their heads on this. Uh, right, walk us through what's the driver on sure. that. Sure. Well, quick. the driver there is you know during the, the Trump administration, he agreed to move Space Command to uh, Alabama. And uh, this administration has not formalized that decision yet. So there's a big fight between the Colorado delegation and the Alabama, Alabama delegation as to whether where the home of space command is going to be. And the, the administration has yet to make a determination. So this is trying to force that determination. Well, but, but this is also a factor in this is uh, that Alabama has voted in more restriction abortion standards that then potentially complicate where the United States Air Force wants to put, may want to deploy and and put people, right? Um, yes. Which could be a factor in this decision as well. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a factor. We've talked about that on, on previous episodes. So you're, you're absolutely correct. So, and we've talked previously about the, the Navy, about how uh, Congress was very unhappy with the Navy's you know, record-setting budget, but yet with that record-setting budget, uh, they were actually uh, uh, taking away more ships than they were adding. So um, they added a um, you know, San, Antonio, San Antonio class amphibious warship uh, that the Marines have been saying that they wanted. And actually, uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps backed that up in testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee earlier this week, saying not only did they need that, but, but 31 is really their, their minimum number. Um, and it does block the retirement of several other amphibious ships uh, and prevents them from scrapping uh, cruisers as well. Um, the, the bill also dissolves the Cape director because um, there's been a lot of tension between the Hill and Cape and just transfers those uh, responsibilities over to another part of the department. Uh, but, you know, you, you've asked, you know, previously you've talked about legacy platforms. I mean, the bill does allow the Air Force, for example, to retire 42 A-10s, uh, does allow them to retire 57 uh, F F-15s. Uh, so, uh, you know, that bill, I think, is going to be a bipartisan pro project. Uh, you know, it will be a bipartisan process, um, be a bipartisan product. The, the markup is scheduled for next Wednesday in full committee. There's already 980 amendments filed uh, for that. So it's going to be a long day and a long night. Um, now, on defense appropriations, completely different story. This is not a bipartisan product. It's a partisan uh, product because of the changes now to spending levels. Uh, that bill cuts $20 billion from the president's budget request, but redirects that funding uh, to things that Congress feels will address warfighter needs, countering China, et cetera. Uh, now, it does things like preventing funding for climate change programs. It cuts a billion dollars from the president's budget to increase the size of the civilian workforce. It also prevents right. uh, retiring of certain ships, uh, but you know, funds a nuclear triad. But there are some 
major partisan policy writers on this bill, which all but ensure that no Democrat is going to vote for the defense appropriations bill. And historically, about 50 Republicans vote against it on the floor. So I don't see how this bill is going to get off the floor. And I'll give you some examples. Uh, is Their bill will prohibit the implementation, administration, or enforcement of the Biden administration's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It defunds the position of Deputy Inspector General for diversity and inclusion and extremism uh, in, the, in the military. Um, it, it, it deals with the abortion issue. It prohibits the use of funds for paid leave and travel or related expenses of a federal employee or their dependents for the purpose of obtaining an abortion or abortion-related services. And most striking to me, um, it, it uh, prohibits granting, renewing, or maintaining of a security clearance for any individual listed as a signatory in the statement titled Public Statement on the Hunter Biden Emails dated October 19, 2020. Now, back in, you know, that, that there was a statement issued by over 50 national security leaders back in October of 2020 that said, look, you know, we're all folks that have devoted a significant portion of our lives to national security. Um, and we see Russia as one of our primary adversaries. We don't think uh, we think elections should be decided by Americans, not, not foreign governments. And for these reasons that they were writing that saying, look, the arrival on the U.S. political scene of emails purportedly belonging to the vice president's son has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation and that their experience makes them deeply suspicious of those uh, of, of the Russian role uh, in, in those Hunter Biden emails. Um, and, and, you know, they said it's high time the Russians stop interfering with our democracy. And it's signed by folks like um, Leon Panetta, Mike Hayden, Jim Clapper, you know, uh, Mike Vickers. Uh, and, you know, like I said, about 50 other folks. And the bill would prohibit these people not only from getting another security clearance, but revoke the current security clearances they have. So an incredibly uh, partisan uh, exercise. I should point out that I'm in uh, Paris now, uh, and and that's a big story here where the government has, is pointing a finger uh, at Russia, not formally naming it, but saying Russian state actors were responsible for a massive disinformation campaign that's been operating in France uh, to change uh, public opinion. Uh, obviously, uh, about uh, Ukraine. Dove, um, I want to go to you really quickly because uh, obviously uh, the cost analysis program evaluation office at the Pentagon uh, is the internal office that assesses the, quote, true cost of programs. It evaluates them about whether or not they make sense. They they report directly to the secretary and to the deputy, which is why they're reviled by a lot of people in the building who want to make maybe less um, stringent assessments on cost or utility or how it fits into strategy more broadly, right? I mean, so if it's a, you know, if it's an office you want to shoot, this is the office you wrote about it. Just really quickly, you know, talk about the marks, what you like, what you don't like, uh, but also give us a sense about whether or not getting rid of CAPE and its current iteration, like what what does that achieve exactly? Well, it, it really was Chairman Mike Rogers who who pushed this. And I think this has a lot to do, well, actually he made it clear that it had a lot to do with the fact that last year's NDAA had said the Marine Corps should not go below 31 amphibious ships. And instead of complying, what OSD CAPE has done is essentially slow roll this by studying it yet again. And Rogers is just furious. And there's a long, long history. I, I've written about it today in The Hill. This goes all the way back to McNamara and the F-111 the Navy had its own uh, version of that and what was then called the Office of Systems Analysis killed it. Uh, during the Reagan years, PA&E fought the 15 carrier force until President Reagan himself said, I want it. So there's a lot of bad blood here, uh, particularly when it comes to the Navy Marine Corps and, and uh, Mr. Rogers is simply uh, furious. Now, the thing is the secretary and the deputy secretary needs somebody some office to do this kind of evaluation. Uh, so if it's not going to be CAPE, it's got to be some some office. And uh, uh, as I understand it, Rogers hasn't exactly said who should do it, uh, but somehow it's going to need to be done. And there are some ideas. And of course, uh, my friend Bob Hale is uh, running the PPBE uh, uh, Reform uh, Commission, and hopefully they'll come up with some kinds of uh, ideas. I want to add a little bit to some of the more uh, eye-popping uh, elements of the uh, appropriations bill. Um, no medical procedures that attempt to change an individual's biological gender. That's gonna drive the Democrats nuts because they've been pushing that. 
Um, no, and this is a wild one, prohibits the use of funds for events on military installations or as part of recruiting programs that bring, I'm quoting here, discredit upon the military, such as drag queen story hour for children or the use of drag queens as military recruiters. And then no funds for advancing critical race theory. So these, this is all red meat to the Republican base. And um, obviously uh, it's something that drives the Democrats nuts. Uh, one other uh, point to just uh, uh, add to what, what Michael said about the uh, cut in defense uh, civilian funding. Uh, Mr. Calvert, Ken Calvert, the chairman of the uh, defense subcommittee on the House uh, Appropriations Committee, has long been very, very skeptical about the size of the civilian defense force. Uh, and uh, obviously adding to it was not something that he would tolerate. That's where the billion dollar cut comes from. But they've also asked for a study to actually in, uh, reassess the number and roles of civilian personnel. And I think that is uh, the uh, thin edge of the wedge that uh, I think Mr. Calvert has in mind in terms of cutting back on the size of the civilian force. And I would simply point out that uh, it wasn't all that long ago that particularly the Office of the Secretary of Defense was considerably smaller and more flexible. And we keep talking about the need to be flexible to face China. And that's not the way OSD seems to go. Uh, well, indeed. I mean, virtually everything has gotten orders of magnitude bigger than once upon a time it was, whether the National Security Council uh, or anything else. Um, let me uh, go back to you, uh, Michael. Uh, Tommy Tuberville still have his, has his holds on. I want to get your comment briefly on that. And then also very briefly uh, about the entire uh, Trump uh, indictment matter, first president to face federal charges. I would just point out, you know, reality winner. Uh, disclosed uh, a document that revealed uh, the extent of Russia's uh, uh, involvement in the 2016 campaign. She did that in 2018, and, and she was in jail for more than five years, and that was one document that she released to reporters. Uh, you know, in the this president's case, we're dealing with an enormous number of documents that are actually orders of magnitude larger that, and the movement of documents seems to also correlate with certain foreign interests that he may or may not have had, whether they were in New Jersey at certain times or Florida at certain times and who was visiting and not, right? It opens the question, why were the documents moving up and down the Eastern seaboard? Um, give us your sense on Tumberville very quickly. And how do you think this issue sort of plays into, um, you know, I mean, a, a dysfunctional situation and for a party that repeatedly says it wants to break with Trump is showing no inclination, whatever, of breaking with, right. with Trump, even though if some of the candidates have edged a little bit further out on that gangplank. Right. Well, so we'll start quickly with Tupperville. So the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, reported uh, a, a big number of senior level military promotions uh, to the floor earlier this week. Uh, which brings the total number of flag officers uh, that are being held up to about 250. Uh, but Tupperville made it clear again this week that he is no closer to lifting uh, this blockade, right? So Tupperville and also Senator Joni Ernst talked about uh, her bill, which would reverse the Pentagon's abortion policy. Uh, Tupperville told Senator Ernst that he won't accept a deal in which her bill gets a vote as part of the annual uh, defense authorization process in exchange uh, for lifting his hold. He said that while he backs Ernst's bill, he'll only relent if the Pentagon drops the policy or the Senate passes legislation from Senator Shaheen that codifies the policy. So neither's likely, neither is going to happen because Senator Shaheen's bill can't get 60 votes and Senator Ernst's bill, bill uh, can't get uh, 60 votes. So uh, and now we saw something really unusual early this week where uh, the Marine Corps is going to be without a Senate confirmed leader, uh, the commandant. Uh, sent out an invitation to, instead of a change of command ceremony, to a relinquishment of office ceremony uh, to right. be held in July. Uh, so, For First time uh, in history, I believe that that's the case, uh, yes. if, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. But No, I, th I think you're right. So, you know, General Smith will be the, uh, will lead the Marine Corps on a temporary basis until we get, get past this. And look, to make matters worse, uh, 
you know, you, it, this really is a good segue into, into the, the question you asked about Trump. Um, Senator J.D. Vance from Ohio uh, now is threatening to put holds on all nominees to the Justice Department because of the indictment against uh, President, former President Trump. And uh, the House responded uh, this week with Anna Paulina Luna offering a privileged resolution to censor Adam Schiff. Uh, and fine him uh, $16 million, uh, you know, because of uh, his work, you know, again, leading the, the impeachment proceedings and investigating the, the Russia collusion. Uh, now, fortunately, uh, 20 Republicans joined the Democrats and had that resolution tabled, but she has announced that she's going to bring it back to the floor next week uh, and take out the $16 million fine. I think she, if she can get enough Republican votes. So it's, it's really, you know, getting silly. Uh, and I think we will see, unfortunately, more Republicans endorsing Trump. Again, not out of support for Trump, but out of fear uh, that they're going to have a primary and they just don't want to deal with that. So they just want to endorse him and make that problem uh, go away. And a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Unfortunately, courage is an integral part of politics. Um, so anyway, let's just let's just leave it at that. Um, instead of diving uh, much deeper into this, we're going to keep moving because we have such a big week uh, in in order uh, that we need to cover. Jim, uh, you've been very uh, patient. Huge week, obviously, for uh, the war uh, for the alliance. What do we know more about Ukraine's counteroffensive than we did before? Because in some certain respects, all of those Russian uh, dug-in defenses are appearing to to take a toll, uh, ultimately. I mean, obviously, it's probably not as great as Vladimir Putin uh, claims uh, it is. Uh, but the Ukrainians themselves have said, look, it's been a couple of days and we really haven't taken back uh, any territory. And all eyes are on whether or not support for Ukraine will uh, continue. What's encouraging is folks on a widespread basis say that they're still going to continue supporting Ukraine. Where, where are we? What do we know now that we uh, didn't before I take you to Germany's strategy and uh, Russian nukes back in Belarus? Well, I think, uh, in fact, we talked about this on our show for weeks now. Um, we all knew that this was going to be uh, hard slogging starting off, particularly in the first few weeks, going through those minefields, uh, digging out those uh, Russian soldiers deep in the ground uh, in their trenches. Uh, it's going to be very difficult. And remember, Ukraine doesn't have any air defense. I mean, in terms of flying aircraft, they don't have any air cover. They don't have F-16s or anything flying over their heads uh, to provide close air support. They're out there by themselves. Uh, and, and that's something that I think we need to remember when we're talking about uh, uh, getting, getting Ukraine aircraft is this is how, this, these, are, these are times when it's needed. Uh, and it's just a pity that they're out there without air cover. So, uh, so it's, it's what we expect. Not to interrupt. Not not to interrupt, but but, yeah. but but just briefly, because you you raised this. Is this slow going in part because we did not act soon enough when we should have all the way back a year ago when on this program we were saying that this is the stuff that should be authorized and we were hand wringing our way to yeah. the standstill? Absolutely. And it's not just aircraft, but uh, we have not been giving them the volume of uh, armored vehicles that they need. You know, they lost some Bradleys. Uh, a leopard two or so, and that's just what we've been able to glean off of social media. They're going to have hits uh, in terms of armored vehicles, armored personnel carriers. We know we've rushed some Bradleys in to try to replace some of those lost. So the I, so you know we are seeing the results of having stuff dribbled in a little bit here, a little bit there. No aircraft, of course, and no attackums. But we're gonna you know uh, fight over the tanks and when we're gonna release tanks. Uh, and so, you know, I saw a photo today of this of, of a Swedish armored personnel carrier still on trains going into going into uh, Ukraine. So they're still re receiving the stuff as their as their offensive has started off. And I tell you, I think um, there's a lot well, there's a lot for the the West to think about in terms of the rate of supply and the bulk of supply. Uh, that we did not provide over the past year. And so these guys are going to go out there and they're going to do the best they can. But I tell you, uh, they're going to they're going to lose uh, armored vehicles. They're going to lose other kinds of transportation munitions. I hope we have a big pipeline going into Ukraine to help uh, fill these gaps as they appear, uh, you know, from from losses. And we're seeing it right now. 
And just to say, Bago, that doesn't mean that this offensive is a is is bogged down. It's not successful. There's mistakes. This is what we all knew was going to happen. This is this is what offensives look like in a in a defensive situation like this that the Russians have, and the West knew that a year ago. You know, this isn't right. surprising anyone. And so I think uh, let's let's see how things go. But the next few weeks, we're going to have to really buckle buckle down because. Uh, it's going to be just agony watching them go through these minefields and seeing these photos coming from Russia of leopards or APCs of some type, M113s that uh, have been blown up on the field. So, but we gotta, we gotta be strong and, and, and keep them supplied with what they need. Can I just Let add me, to uh, that, Vago? Of course I you may. Go ahead, please, Duff. Most military observers uh, and military historians agree that these kinds of counteroffensives are like hockey sticks. It's always much more difficult in the very beginning until there's the turnaround. So we're right now at, at the downward side of that hockey stick, and actually it isn't as bad as it could be. Um, but uh, J- Jim's absolutely right. Uh, the only way this thing can succeed is if we not only continue to send what we're sending, but really accelerate it. And I don't see that right now. It's more of more of the same rather than really ramping up to the degree that the Ukrainians need it. I, I agree. Uh, a, a sign of that, Vago and Dove, is that we just rushed these uh, these Bradleys uh, to, to try to fill the gap. Uh, you know, the Bradley should have been prepositioned, you know, in Poland, right. ready to go. They shouldn't be. We had we shouldn't go through some rush. Uh, you know, to fill the gaps. Uh, we should have anticipated this. So, you know, we're playing catch up suddenly and that's that's not a good sign. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, not. Uh, let me uh, take you to uh, Germany's first ever national security strategy, although I think that that is really a misnomer uh, because obviously Germany had a national security strategy, at least West Germany uh, did and has had in one capacity or another, uh, even though all of it changed with the Titan vendor. Um, ultimately, what does the new national security strategy mean? What's the so what here without trying to minimize it? No, well, I, I, th- I think the first so what is the fact that they were able to do it. I, I, I tip my hat to what you said, that they've had variations on this over time. But but this is the first uh, kind of national security strategy that we would recognize in Washington, you know, comprehensive uh, and uh, and uh, trying to uh, lay out where Germany is going in terms of the next uh, next number of years. And so Germany has had a hard time uh, bureaucratically uh, and, and philosophically, too, in a lot of ways, to sit down and to hammer something out like that among the various uh, agencies of the government and among the parties, you know. Uh, and so they've been able to do it. And uh, it's not, I, I don't think it's a bad document, considering that, this, that they're starting this thing off. Uh, I've read it. Uh, I've read a lot of commentary on it. We did a Brussels sprouts on it yesterday. Uh, right. uh, and so, I mean, you know, it's it's I, I think we have to realize that uh, the fact that they have done this uh, shows that they are really trying to get some momentum in terms of this sea change that was announced last year after the invasion uh, of Ukraine. Um, uh, there's there's some problems uh, that are there. One is that they need money to back up what's in that national security strategy. The United States, for instance, our national security strategy this year, in fact, has links back to the budget. Uh, And so the budgets are put together based on this strategy, or they're supposed to be. Uh, And uh, and so there's money to to do it. The German strategy does not have that. It's it's a guidance for where uh, the government wants to go, but they're gonna then have to get the money to do that. Uh, and that's probably the, the biggest problem. But it took us a long time to have our national security strategies uh, uh, linked up with money, too. Uh, ours has been right. aspirational for a long time, too. Now they're trying to really tighten that up. And Germany is just starting. So so no matter uh, you know what people are, may say about it, we have to remember how important it is that they have actually started this. This is this is for Germany. This is a good thing. Um, Let me uh, quickly move you uh, to the Belarus uh, question uh, and whether that really changes anything, right? I mean, obviously, saber-rattling on Putin's uh, behalf, the alliance was used to, uh, uh, you know, Soviet nukes on its borders. Uh, We lived that way for very many decades. Anyway, what what does this meaningfully change uh, now that, you know, he's, he's done this escalatory step to show that he can? 
Um, you know, I don't, th I don't think it's meaningful in terms of a nuclear strategy or, or the nuclear threat. I think, uh, you know, I think it was really much more of a propaganda uh, move where uh, Putin still thinks that if he rattles that nuclear saber, he can scare Western Europe, he can scare the U.S., he can cause pressure on Western leadership from certain elements in society that say, oh, my God, you know, he's still got nuclear weapons on the move. This is terrible. You know, I think Putin right. still feels that has an impact. And I have not seen uh, an impact, frankly, uh, um, in the Western unity based on uh, rattling that nuclear saber. So and, and remember, too, that these weapons might be moving there physically. Then that doesn't mean Belarus is going to have the red button, uh, you know, and launching their own right, nuclear right. strikes. They're just moving them down the road. That's all. And a quick reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host uh, with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Um Patrick, uh, you have been, uh, as always, ever uh, patient. Jens Stoltenberg uh, is in uh, Japan and had to make the unfortunate disclosure of that, which we already knew because of good reporting, uh, that France uh, has put in the kibosh on a joint uh, as a liaison, NATO liaison office in Tokyo that was also going to uh, connect the alliance with Australia, New Zealand, and, and South Korea. Now that that's happened, what What's the impact uh, ultimately, right? I mean, does it does it move the needle at all? Does it change anything? What's 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 the sense? What's the sense now? Well, not only has Japan been building up its ties to, to the French over the last decade uh, with seven two plus two meetings, uh, with an AXA agreement, uh, maritime exercises, and a, a relationship that the French themselves call an exceptional partnership. But Japan's also been at the forefront of the AP, Asia-Pacific four countries, with South Korea, Australia, New Zealand being the other three, building up ties to uh, NATO, especially since the February 2022 wake-up call of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, um, you know, the Japanese are wounded, uh, gobsmacked even. Um, you know, the French resistance in World War II was heroic. This was rather uh, uh, craven because it seems to be trying to curry favor with uh, Xi Jinping. Um, in fact, that famous interview that uh, Macron gave on the plane back from China uh, talked about how Taiwan wasn't really Europe's business. He seemed to be playing into China's uh, hand that um, is almost establishing new red lines, you know, no NATO in Asia, but also um, you know, no Asian NATO and maybe US out of Asia. I mean, those are the, those are the areas where China's really kind of lobbying everybody. And here, Macron, maybe for some good reasons as well, uh, not just uh, because he was doing Xi's bidding, but he was doing Europe's bidding because he does genuinely see France as the leadership of, of a third pole in this multipolar world, with Europe as the third pole. Obviously, there's more than three poles, and the French are not necessarily uh, at the lead in Europe, but nonetheless, uh, tell that to President Macron. I don't think this is the end of the story. I think you know this was the end of maybe the Vilnius summit story. Um, but I think this will be a continuation of, uh, of lobbying from Japan and from Korea and others, because I, I think the um, indivisibility of European and Asian security has a logic that is very powerful, that, you know, the outcome and the course of what happens in Ukraine really does matter in Asia. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in Paris and one of the observations being made is that um, you know, I mean, first, you know, when you make that democracies based uh, uh, argument, uh, there are a lot of countries in Africa which are in the Francophone alliance are not exactly democracies. So that puts pressure uh, on France. And China is very active in some of those very same countries, right? So it feels like there are pressure uh, on uh, its uh, global sphere that the Chinese are able uh, to apply. Uh, and that that puts, uh, you know, according to some that I've spoken to here in Paris, uh, uh, pressure uh, on uh, on, um, uh, on, yeah. on France. Um, you know, obviously, you know, China has a lot of power and we've talked about uh, on this program how hard it's been to get the rest of the world to come along with uh, the, the democracies in this process. You know, but let me just put this in perspective here again. Um, Japan has just conducted uh, joint exercises with NATO air forces. Um, that's an incredible step for a country that's had a pacifistic constitution 
and has been allergic to anything outside of the U.S. alliance. Um, and yet uh, this is a liaison office. This is not putting French troops in Japan. This is not a NATO in Asia. Um, a liaison office is that it's right. a place for talking. So, I, you know, I, I think it, while the French undoubtedly were under pressure and also there were some inducements as well, um, I, I think maybe they didn't play this as well as they could have. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the Cuba story. Um, you know, I it's always pretty problematic to say a total story is totally untrue or, you know, say the story is not untrue. Well, part of the story was untrue. Right. So you, there's a technical thing you can cling to that they're building a base as opposed to, well, actually, there is a base and we're trying to resolve it quietly. Interpret that any way you will. What does this yeah. ultimately mean um, aside from, you know, having maybe from a PR standpoint, OK, you guys didn't really manage this particularly well. What, what, what do we know any more this week? You know, almost a reprise of my question that I asked, you know, Jim, you know, what do we more what do we know more this week than we did last week? And does anything change than what we had discussed last week? Well, there's so many different responses to a Cuban spy base. I mean, it, you know, there's no better symbol in the Western Hemisphere of the Cold War than a Cuban uh, sort of crisis. And um, here are the Chinese uh, basically instigating a new crisis in our own hemisphere. That takes some chutzpah. And the fact that this is coming after the spy balloon sort of episode that we still don't have a full report on. Um, I think there are a lot of people scratching their heads and wanting the administration to be a, give a full accounting of what's happened. And um, for this to come out piecemeal is not an ideal narrative. Um, but clearly, it's not a surprise that Cuba is selling out to the Chinese, reportedly one to two billion dollars. Who knows what else? Um, they're cash trapped and the Chinese are very willing to invest in strategic real estate. And here's a place you could put down some nice intelligence second gear. And it happens to be 100 miles from Florida. So um, it, no big surprise the Chinese are doing this. And because it's not missiles, it's just listening. Um, you know, they have an argument that, OK, uh, I think Max Boots wrote a piece. Right. We do this, too. What's the big deal? Well, um, right. it, it may not be unusual, but it's still a big deal just just because. Um, it may be uh, tit for tat. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not still a threat to our security. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, what is an interesting uh, impact uh, in the Indo-Pacific. I'm less uh, sort of interested in the mechanics of this. Uh, the Chinese are always very interested in messaging um, and what leaders take what jobs. Uh, we had discussed some time ago, I think, that uh, uh, you know normally uh, now that Lung Aquilino is re retiring uh, from uh, Indo-Pacific Command, Sam Paparo, the Pacific Fleet Commander, would replace him. Uh, but Lung has wanted a naval aviator, and indeed naval aviators have wanted a CNO to be a naval aviator to shepherd the FAXX uh, future fighter uh, effort uh, forward. Uh, obviously, Admiral Paparo uh, is an aviator. Um, everybody thought Lisa Franchetti, a surface officer, was going to take the job. She's currently the vice chief of naval operations. Uh, there were news reports that, that said that Paparo interviewed better uh, uh, ultimately and, and was selected for the job for that uh, reason. Now, it would appear that if this plan goes ahead, that General Fenton, the special operations commander, would go out to the uh, Indo-Pacific, uh, where he would be the first army leader, I think, in a good long time to to, to have the job. Well, from a messaging standpoint, what does what does all of this mean? And and is you know some argue it sends a very bad signal not to have a navy or an air force guy in there. Other people say, look, General Fenton is an extraordinarily qualified officer, uh, and indeed might send a different message to show a special operations commander out there uh, in the Indo-Pacific. From, from your standpoint, is there a messaging impact to any of this, uh, assuming that the White House signs off on it? Although, you know, as we were talking before we got started, Dove pointed out, you know, if if, if Secretary, if it has Secretary Austin's, you know, blessing, it's it's likely to be accepted by the White House. But what's what's your sense in terms of what this means and how it's received? Well, I think there is messaging in the signaling, even though there is a disciplined process of choice and trying to choose the best person for the job from the administration's perspective. You know, a special operations uh, leader for the region shows, hey, we're going to be in here for a real fight. We're here to struggle. We're here to take every inch. Um, and um, I think for the Navy, and I wrote this in the messenger, that I think um, Admiral Paparo, while he is this formidable naval uh, warfighting figure, um, it's exactly what uh, the training equipped function of the Navy needs. It needs a kick in the butt to get serious about getting ready for contested uh, operations and even conflict. And here, Admiral Paparo is, uh, is, is probably the best guy for the job. 
Um, so I, and that's taking nothing away from the other candidates, but he's just got a reputation for having been in charge of Wolfpack Fleet, which is the biggest part of the Navy's operations uh, in the world. So um, it's a very important message there as well. And, and I believe the administration probably chose through the interview process the people they thought were best for the job. But I think there is always that signaling. We've seen this before in, in other assignments, uh, for instance, to the Korean Peninsula, when they've chosen top warfighters out of the last wars to send a signal to North Korea. Um, they've clearly wanted to uh, reinforce at least their diplomacy with their personnel choices. Um, Dove, uh, we are running uh, short on time, and I want your bites on uh, Turkey. Uh, Erdogan obviously meeting with the Swedish delegation, uh, looking obviously for Ankara's blessing, or I should say Erdogan's blessing, uh, to become uh, the latest NATO uh, member. Um, obviously, uh, some hardliner news uh, out of Israel. And then there's the administration's approach uh, to the Iranians uh, to diffuse tension, uh, tensions. Uh, walk us through all three of those, and what do you make of them? Well, let's start with Sweden. Um, Erdogan has basically said that as long as there are protests against Turkey, he's not going to let Sweden in. So he's essentially saying the Swedish government ought to become as authoritarian as he is. And of course, that's not going to happen. So you have an impasse there. Now you have also some collateral damage. Uh, Senator Jim Risch, who is the uh, ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, has put a hold on sending 24 uh, high Mars to Hungary because Hungary has yet to uh, vote uh, Sweden into NATO. So this thing is getting very, very complicated. Uh, and, uh, you know, people were hoping something would be settled by Vilnius, but but I don't think so. I think Sweden will get in, but it's still going to take some time. On the uh, Israeli scene, uh, the government, or rather the coalition, took a hit because there's a thing called the Judicial Commission or committee that votes on all judges, including the Supreme Court, which is, uh, as you know, is uh, the center of a lot of dispute and, and demonstrations because the right wing wants to completely overhaul it uh, and essentially defang it. Um, but the Knesset, the parliament, voted for an opposition figure to be part of this, to be one member of this commission and voted over one of the right wing uh, candidates, uh, the right wing candidate, and the more extreme elements of the of the coalition are blaming Netanyahu personally and his party Likud as, and they use the word traitors. They feel that uh, they've been undermined, but it, it's a signal again that this coalition uh, may not hold for all that very long. They're, you know, the extremists are pulling in one direction, and Netanyahu. Uh, for all that he's a right winger, has always been far more cautious. On the other hand, Netanyahu has also said that if the United States goes ahead and cuts a deal with Iran on uh, somehow reviving the nuclear deal, the so-called JCPOA, Israel reserves the right to act on its own. Now, the supreme leader, Khamenei, has said, I'm, I'm OK with a deal as long as you don't touch my infrastructure. Does it also mean that they, they're at 60% enrichment, which means they're a hop, skip, and jump from having a nuclear capability, nuclear weapons capability? Does it also mean that he wants to keep that? Well, he hasn't right. been explicit about that. Uh, but, you know, the Israelis may talk tough, but the, when you're talking about a country the size of Texas uh, with lots of lots of dispersed uh, uh, nuclear facilities, if the Israelis try to do this on their own and especially if they think that we've cut a deal, which we then would not walk away from, uh, they will be on their own. Um, all it's going to do is give the Iranians an excuse to go nuclear. Uh, but the Israelis are furious that uh, there have been all these meetings in Oman, and it's not even clear what exactly we're going to do other than release money. And here, uh, the, my last point, we've already agreed to $2.7 billion being released, so-called. Uh, this is uh, money that Iraq owes Iran for electricity and, and other uh, power supplies. Uh, we've said, well, that's okay. It's for humanitarian reasons. It hasn't gone directly to the government, as if the government of Iran doesn't control everything it wants to control. But the Iranians want more. They're holding uh, Americans and Brits, uh, six of them, as, as essentially hostages. And they're saying, 
well, if you want these people, uh, then you nearly need to release that $7 billion that we've got in right. uh, South Korea, uh, that South Korea is holding and hasn't been released. And how that ties in with the JCPOA and whether we're going to give up that money, uh, that's a very, very big question and certainly a controversial one. Um, let me, um, uh, I asked Michael for comment on this, and I want to go all around the horn because of the magnitude of the documents case uh, after the indictment was released. If any human being had access to any of these documents, they'd be in deep kimchi. And I understand it's a former president, but we now have that former president on tape admitting he didn't declassify him before he took him. They've been traipsing around. They were unsealed. It is far more boxes than we ever thought it was. That also includes far more serious information than we thought it contained. That then also has knock-on effects with all of our intelligence partners as well. And this after the whole Teixeira mess. Very quickly, uh, and uh, you know, Jim, Patrick, and then Dove, really quick, just give us your assessment on what this means globally um, which is, you know, nobody in our system is above the law. And if you broke it that flagrantly and then went to such efforts to co cover it up is a highly problem. I think we can agree in a nonpartisan way is highly problematic. You know, these aren't just somebody's emails. This is nuclear information and the like war plans. Uh, very quickly, Jim, Patrick, sort of what the global message here is and how your spheres are, are viewing uh, this rupture, given that, you know, everybody on this call with the exception, well, even Michael, when he was serving in the department, I should say, I wasn't, I was going to let you off the hook, Michael. Uh, but, you know, you too had a top secret TSSCI clearance. Quickly, just take a bite at it. Jim, start us off, Patrick, and then Dove, and we'll wrap it up. Well, I think the first and biggest thing for me in, in terms of what the allies might be thinking of is just how crazy Trump is. I mean, what motive, what motivated him to bring back to his place such high level, esoteric, top secret nuclear stuff? They're just they're, what was he selling them? Is that what it was? So I think for me, for the allies, it's really how crazy Trump is and therefore uh, what the future could look like if he finds himself back in the White House. Uh, he's not just some uh, U.S. politician that they dealt with in the past and they'll just have to do it again. He's, he is just um, someone that, that is, it brings great fear to allied hearts. That's what they're looking at, is, is his mental state. Patrick? Well, it, um, if convicted, uh, these are high crimes. Uh, doesn't mean he should go to jail because he was the president, and that creates a, a unique situation for how the U.S. is viewed, not just in Asia, but around the world if we are seen to be locking up the opposition party, um, even if uh, they committed crimes. Um, I think uh, so. Is that is that a you know in other in other countries though they go to means, jail right if they broke well, the law they do. Um, but uh, I think the United States you know sets itself up uh, in, in a you know on a pedestal and it's very difficult. It just looks the, the optics are very bad. And I'm just I'm not getting you know we're getting way ahead of the uh, of the judicial process. Let the judicial process go through. If he's convicted uh, and he's and those go on his record, he probably should pay. Some, he should definitely pay some penalties. Whether he goes to jail or not, that might be something that a, a president might want to commute because uh, of how it looks internationally. But in terms of our perception in the region, it looks hypocritical for the United States president to be able to do and say whatever he wants. And it doesn't necessarily strengthen our power. It strengthens his power with his base. And that was sort of borne out in an interesting uh, sort of focus group that Judy Woodruff did on PBS last night. Um, where every single person interviewed in the Republican caucus in Iowa said they were standing by uh, the president on this issue, um, but that is Trump. And I think, that, you know, therefore, strengthening that argument is not necessarily a, a, a prudent thing for the U.S. political, uh, you know, parties to be doing either. We need to be making this a crime, um, showing that the criminality that was committed um, penalizing it, but again, recognizing that this is the president. And so no man is above the law, but the president is a different kind of person when it comes to sentencing. So the sentencing may need to be commuted, in my view. Uh, Dove, um, does, well, does it get 
And what impact does it have ultimately? Well, look, I, I don't know what how he. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't run for for no, the presidency can, from jail. Run. Eugene V. Debs ran from jail and got a million votes. Um, it depends. I mean, different countries have different approaches. The Israelis uh, put a prime minister in jail, put a president in jail. They almost had a uh, a whole uh, group of them uh, in jail. Uh, Britain just uh, censured Boris Johnson, and the only reason they couldn't suspend him from parliament is because he had quit parliament. Uh, but uh, on our shores, look, Teixeira just got indicted, and we know he's going to go to jail. Uh, what we do about Trump, um, that as, as Jim said, the allies are all terrified, absolutely terrified, um, that he might come back. Uh, they don't care whether he goes to jail or whether he gets a suspended sentence or whether he's commuted or, or whatever. What they care about is that he doesn't come back to the White House. Uh, and uh, frankly, that is the most important thing for the future of our country. Once, once he's not in the White House and he's truly citizen Trump, then let the justice uh, system work its wonders and he'll be, he'll be dealt with. Uh, the key is, uh, and as you say, right now, um, Republican, a lot of Republican voters, they believe this is all a witch hunt and that, uh, you know, they're going to support him. And the question then becomes, is there anyone else uh, who can get that nomination? Uh, and even if he gets it, uh, does he not win the election? That is the that is crucial for the future of the nation, that he not come to the White House. Beyond that, that's the justice system. I agree completely. Just before we go, um, I was just reminded, 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force, uh, 75th anniversary of uh, women integrated into uh, the United States military. Uh, 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 I have to ask you, Michael, you know, how is this whole Paparo Franchetti, right? How is that issue playing out on, on what is kind of a historic week? Because there was a lot of expectation that it's time for uh, a female uh, service chief, uh, understanding that only the most qualified people should get that job right. It shouldn't be a set aside. And everybody had an impression that Admiral Franchetti was a highly qualified person for the job. But also everybody knows in, in this in this town, you know, you could be the best person in the world and you have an interview that might not be that good. And alas, things uh, play out. Anyway, I'm not trying to presuppose this and there's no formal announcement. But how is this playing on the Hill? one way or another? Uh, not well, because uh, as you pointed out, they felt the timing was <laughs> terrible uh, because as you mentioned, this week, the US military is celebrating its 75th anniversary of women joining the armed forces. So it just did not sit well uh, with members. And there were you know, a lot of uh, you know, people scratching their heads, you know, because you know, Fr Franchetti is, you know, has both operational and policy experience. I mean, she commanded two strike groups in the Pacific. Uh, she's now you know, in, in a current job as, as the vice you know, CNO. So, um, you know, I think you know, there are folks out there that want to ask questions, but at the same time, they don't want to undermine, um, you know, Admiral Paparo either and make it look like they're coming after him. But they'd like to understand why uh, this decision was made. Uh, and especially many of the female members on Capitol Hill, especially the ones who are veterans, I've talked to some of them as well. And they try to figure out what's the right approach uh, to get answers to their questions because they seem very uh, unhappy and blindsided by this decision, especially with the timing. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you guys on. Hope you guys have uh, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much.